listeners to The Abstract. My name is Tyler Finn. I'm the head of community and growth at SpotDraft, and I'm so excited to be joined today for our second episode by Doug Luffman. Doug has a long and storied career in Silicon Valley across Fenwick and West, Palm, uh, which he was at when they were acquired by HP, serving as general counsel of a number of high-growth technology companies that have been sold, and uh, most recently as Deputy General Counsel and Chief Privacy Officer of DocuSign. So excited to have you on the podcast, Doug. Welcome. Hey, thanks, Tyler. Uh, looking forward to our conversation, and thanks for having me here. Me too. And uh, we've known each other for a while, so I think it'll be it'll be conversational. I gave our, our audience a little bit of, of your background in, in your career, but any highlights that, that you would share off the back as some of the sort of most interesting roles that, that you've had? Oh, boy. I mean, I think you summarized kind of, you know, a variety of the companies. I mean, I think it's more about, you know, being in Silicon Valley over the last uh, 25 years and really seeing it going from, you know, consumer electronics and hardware companies to software as a service. And uh, now, you know, chat GBT and artificial intelligence and the likes. So it's been pretty exciting being in the Valley over these, uh, these over two decades and uh, seeing where things are going and just being part of the history of... Uh, of Silicon Valley. Yeah, here at SpotDraft, we are paying a lot of attention to AI, ChatGPT, and see a lot of buzz about that in the market for for sure. I wanted to start by by going back to the beginning of your career. You know, you started as outside counsel at Fenwick and West. You actually did go in house pretty early on and, and took on a, a GC role. And then, you know, throughout your career, you continue to pursue other legal executive positions at both private and, and public tech companies specializing in tech. The audience might not know this yet, actually. You were an electrical engineering major in undergrad. How much of the sort of specializing in tech was your interest in hardware versus a career choice and seeing tech as a, a sort of huge opportunity? How did you how did you think about picking this sector? Yeah, I I, I think it really came down to uh, the, the dynamics around, you know, technology is that basically, you know, in the late 90s, it was, you know, the thing from the standpoint of impacting, you know, everything from uh, the internet to consumer electronics to data, data centers and the like. And so I think that's what really intrigued me about it and one of the reasons why I came to Silicon Valley. I had the opportunity to look all around the country and it just kept coming back to just this really exciting kind of exponential growth and doing really new and exciting things. And also I think the work philosophy and, and mentality in the Valley has been really refreshing as well, where, uh, you know, sometimes it gets that cowboy culture, but at the same time, it's really just this exciting environment where you kind of think outside the box and you're encouraged to, and it's not about risk elimination. It's about assumption of risk and uh, really just going in with your eyes open and really just trying to make a difference. That's a great perspective to have, especially as the, the company's lawyer too, being willing to balance, you know, both the risk side and the sort of opportunity side and innovation side. You know, you've served as GC for a number of companies throughout your, your career. Uh, how did you position yourself for those sort of legal executive positions, I would say? Not always with the GC title, but legal executive positions. What do you think businesses are looking for? And, and I'm thinking about this for those folks who are out there who may be contemplating wanting to make a jump to a, a GC or executive role sometime in the next few years. Yeah, I think one has to be careful about it, all about the type. And we hear about VP of legal, which I, I suspect we may talk a little bit more about later, and general counsel and, and the like. I think it's really more about 
looking at what you want as a career trajectory and saying, look, if I want to go from either a specialist to a generalist, you being a generalist means you need to think bigger picture. You need to be able to connect the dots between different functional areas within a company, whether it's the product development, corporate, compliance, sales and marketing, government affairs and the like. And then also, I think it's also about uh, building an executive presence, right? I mean, when you write an email that is three pages long, an exec is not going to want to read it. So you want to, you know, think about the audience you're engaged with and also kind of really better understanding where everyone is kind of coming from. And then uh, really developing that broad skill set. I mean, it's not necessarily being a mile wide and inch deep. It's more along the lines of really picking those areas that are truly your specialties and really refining those. And then where you may not have as much depth, knowing where your limits are and knowing where you need to develop until you build enough of a skill set to show that you're, you can basically tackle, you know, all the things that a company needs. It's funny you say three pages, not not being uh, what you know another exec might want to read. I was uh, at an event recently where we were talking about working with finance and CFOs, and the same the same thing was was said there, which was three bullets, not three pages, because uh, if you have three bullets and then three pages afterwards, they're probably only going to read three bullets. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit today with you about you know how how you evolved from sort of role to role and and managers that you've had in the past who have been willing to let you grow, um, offer you new opportunities, um, perhaps versus right um, those that, that have not given that same level of opportunity and where you've had to, to look outside and, and think about finding new opportunities. And so, you know, how have you thought about that throughout your career? How does that interplay with that concept of being a specialist versus a generalist that you were just talking about? How have, you, how have you approached it? And then maybe after that, I'm going to ask you about how you think about it in the context of the teams that you've built too and, and giving your own team. So with regard to this, is I think it's, it's a, couple, a couple different dynamics. I mean, let's talk about maybe the company overall and then getting into specifically the manager characteristics. Uh, from the company overall, I think what you're always looking for is a work culture and a company culture that basically encourages professional development, growth, and the like. And really... Often, I think people look at companies just from the standpoint of the name. And there are many companies out there that you could probably name that basically the work culture does not necessarily fit the public persona or that it is a very difficult place to work. And so I think it is very important when you are sort of going into your next opportunity or even in the current opportunity, reevaluate what dynamic you're actually working within and seeing whether or not it is actually helping you career wise be constructive or whether or not it's actually holding you back. I think the second part, which is I think what you were, you were asking about as well, is a manager. Is I've had this really fortunate opportunity throughout my career to have very dynamic, very supportive managers and and mentors, where there were basically a desire to get additional skill or additional insight. There's also people beyond even legal that you can actually go to and you know, colleagues and peers within the same company or even outside the company, where there's obviously professional networks and even just colleagues that you interact with. I'm just sharing best practices, and so I think there's variety of opportunity really to get insight. And I think the important thing of all of it is just be curious and really, really not be afraid to ask the questions about, you know, how other people do things. Because if you think that you're doing everything perfect, you're not going to grow. There's always an opportunity for, uh, for self-improvement around that. And, uh, and then I think from the standpoint of staying somewhere versus leaving or just, you know, where there's opportunity, also making sure the environment you're in you're well-respected, you respect others as well, and so it's a mutual kind of a relationship. And uh, and then you just have a very collegial type of environment wherever possible. Yeah, I think that in the sort of current market conditions, folks are finding that that having that great manager 
someone who wants to provide them with opportunities for growth, just nice people to work with is maybe maybe weighted more heavily today than it might have been two years ago, right? People are willing to stay even if the salary isn't quite where they want and or the title isn't um, because they, they know that those are the things that, that maybe matter the most. And I think there's a great point, Teller. I think this also goes to the, 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 the second part of your question regarding how do I look at kind of managing myself? And I think it's one of these things that you want to manage people the way that you want to be managed as well and really make sure that you extend that respect and empower them. And so I think one of the things in, especially in the challenging environments that we see today is being very, very transparent with your team, you know, where you know things, you know, you share as much as you can, or you're allowed to share where you don't know things, acknowledge that it's an uncertain dynamic. And, and with that really say, look, we're all in this together. And I think the most important thing is that basically feeling like uh, your team members feel like you have their back. That if there is a problem that you are there to support them, whether it is emotionally supporting them, professionally supporting them, really just being empathetic as it relates to what's going on in their lives, that may be a struggle. And I do think that the pandemic was actually a very telling time where people shared a lot more of what was going on and you've got an inside view into their world because everything was on Zoom. And so you were able to really kind of get a little bit closer to people, ironically, even though you were remote, because they were challenged with things of, you know, kids coming on calls and pets interrupting conversations. So you could be a little bit more, more casual. And with that, really being empathetic, saying, look, yeah, I've got a kid as well. And sorry that they came on. Have them join the conversation if it's, a, if it's appropriate. Uh, and just keeping it that, you know, keeping it real that, you know, we're all in this together uh, with regard to whatever we're, we're facing, whether it's the pandemic or whether it's the, the financial situations in the markets, um, or even if it's just things within the company itself. Yeah, with, with work and personal life melding, I think a little bit of grace can go a long way. Before we go a little deeper on this, actually, why don't you maybe contextualize for the audience some of the teams that you've built? Because you, you built some pretty decently sized ones over over your career. We just love to sort of hear like, you know, a few places where you've been GC or DGC or, or an exec. What are some of the team sizes that, that you, you've built up? Yeah, I mean, I've built everything from just having a couple people on a team to uh, most recently a DocuSign. I had a team of approximately 30 people. And uh, really building the team, the part that I thought was always really exciting about building a team was not, it never should be about empire building and just saying, I've got X number of people and therefore it's good. It's really more the collegiality and the dynamic and the interaction between all the individuals and also seeing how they professionally develop, whether they stay at the company, whether they stay within the legal group or go to the business team, whether they leave the company and get to a you know, higher level type of opportunity. I think it's just exciting to really work on building in an organization where you are making a difference, helping them professionally grow, even potentially personally grow, and mentoring them wherever you can and, and really trying to uh, to kind of uh, you make it a, you know, a great place to work. I want to talk more about that mentorship concept, actually, and, and how you've thought about that in in your own career you thought of ceos or you've interacted with boards before board members as as mentors uh do you feel like you turn more to other gcs or or other executives how have you really sort of tried to to cultivate those types of relationships throughout throughout your career yeah i think it's actually always important to try to get every every angle that you can right it is Getting insight and mentorship from, you know, managers, getting insight and insight from, uh, you know, even people who report to you, getting, uh, you know, kind of horizontal mentorship from people that are basically comparable either within the legal group or even with outside the legal group and really just trying to get a sense in different ways. And I think by doing that, as well as, as you suggested before, CEOs and boards, just hearing what makes them tick and what's important to them and what's not, and even getting constructive feedback as to, 
you know, hey, I just did a presentation. What resonated? What didn't resonate? If I could do it over, what what should I consider? And I think the more you're kind of curious about how to always have self-improvement and also being genuine and uh, sincere and also finding the right people to get feedback from, I think it's invaluable because then what you can do is that based on the type of individual comes in, you then can kind of tailor and change the lens as it relates to kind of how you convey that information to someone. Yeah, that horizontal m- mentorship is, that's a cool thing to bring up, actually. I'm just, I'm thinking about this and I've been at companies before where they've actually established sort of programmatically opportunities for that to happen, where you may be a relatively junior salesperson, but you get matched up with the chief people officer or with the head of comms. And one, I think there's a ton of signaling value to that, right? To have executives signing up for it. But to your point, it goes both ways, right? That the junior sales leader may learn a lot from working with the CFO and, you know, having a chance to have coffee with the CFO every couple of months. The CFO probably learns a lot too about what people are really thinking sort of boots on the ground within the business. Yes, totally agree. And I think it also grounds you because if you're just talking to the people that you know what they're going to kind of share with you. Right. Maybe <laughs> validates your presumption, but it doesn't necessarily give you more. And I always like it when I've talked to someone that is maybe one, two years out of college or law school. And, you know, some of those questions they ask are really reaffirming of uh, things that uh, you probably have forgotten about early on and from early on career. And you're able to really share some insight as to, okay, over the next five, 10, 15 years, here are the dots you may want to connect or here are the things you may want to consider and either learn from my successes or learn from my mistakes and really just, you know, really help develop other people because I think giving back is always enormously important. Yes. Thank you for being here today and doing a little bit of that. I want to express a little bit of an opinion and see how see how you react to it, which is that success is not becoming a general counsel or another executive. You know, you need to think a little bit beyond the title and what, you know, really motivates you when you get up every morning. Like, you know, hopefully you have a job that actually makes you want to jump out of bed and not crawl. <laughs> and over the course of your career, what type of work environments or quality of engagements have made you want to work really hard? What are the things that you've weighed as, as you think about what motivates you? Yeah, I, I think especially in the tech space, it's about you know the growth of the company. It is about the type of technology or products or ecosystem or industry you're in. Because I think you you know over time, you start developing either a broad brush type of expertise across multiple industries that you can kind of utility player, which is often kind of how I operated. Or there are others that say, you know what, I just want to be just in fintech or I want to just be in medical devices and the like. So I think there's that element of understanding where the company fits in the overall ecosystem. And then do you like that type of environment? Because every industry has has potentially a very different uh, personality to it and a very different potential business kind of motion to it. And so you got to make sure you kind of align there. Uh, I think an equally important uh, piece is really the sophistication of the leaders and uh, the executive team that you're going to be working with. Because I think with that, you're going to be working very closely with them on a, on, a, on a regular basis. And if you don't like the people or if they are either too, uh, you know, having a personality that may not align with yours or a different work philosophy and the like, there's going to be potentially additional friction and it, there's just no need for that additional friction. And what you want to do is really make sure that you're going with a very sophisticated team that, uh, you know, that will help grow the company with your help as well. And I think the third factor is resources. I think that's something you have to kind of consider when you're going in. Do you want to be the type that go in and be the first to turn on the ground and roll up your sleeves 
or do you want to actually have it that you can actually build out an organization and being able to do additional things? And I think depending on where in your career and where your interest level, it can vary as it relates to what you choose there as well. One follow-up on that, on on the concept of sort of learning whether or not you want to, to work across industries and be a GC at a life sciences company and then a GC at a, you know, sports company and then how do you think about figuring that out? Or how did you sort of think about that as, as you tried to figure that out throughout your career? Was, was being at the law firm early on and getting to work with different types of clients really helpful? Was it just taking a few risks early on in a few different roles? How did, how did, you, how did you think about that choice to either sort of specialize in one industry versus bouncing around a little bit and trying new things every yeah, I think it's a couple fold. I think one is understanding the trends in the market, right? I mean, I think that you know, if you talk about certain technologies that were around 20 years ago, they're either not around today or they're commoditized today or they are struggling today. And so there's cycles around all the different industries and the like. So I think one aspect is not just being a good lawyer, but also understanding the ecosystems that you're working within or that you're interested in and really just keeping track of basically their their trajectory. Because there's always kind of a beginning, middle, and potentially an end to a lot of industries, or at least a revolution as to each industry when new disruptive technologies and business models come in. So I think that's one dynamic. And then I think the uh, the second one is, is is talking kind of what we were talking about before about mentorship and, and being curious, is talking to other people. And then if you're not in a specific industry and you have a conversation, they go, yeah, that industry is pretty tough. It's all about, you know, it's all about basically, you know, very, very thin margins, or it's very, or it's very cutthroat, or it's very adversarial, or it's, you know, very uh, slow moving, you know, whatever it might be, knowing what that dynamic is, and then evaluating, does that fit where you are in your career, in your uh, cycle in your life as it relates to, do you want fast pace, middle pace, slow pace, more dynamic, fluid, or more structured? And uh, I think that helps kind of navigate you towards really where you want to head. Yeah, I think it all, it all probably comes back to relationships there and, and and even being willing to do some cold outreach, maybe even to folks within a given industry to learn a bit about before, learn a bit about it before you make the, well, make the leap. You know, the, the flip side of this sort of comment that I made earlier, though, that uh, it's not all about the GC title, um, is that sometimes titles actually do matter. <laughs> and you even previewed early on, right? Like, GC versus DPO legal versus head of legal. We see a lot of these these float around reporting structure, I think, too, right? Like CEO versus CFO. Um, if you're thinking about taking on your first GC or VP or head of legal role, what are some of your thoughts around those titles? Is it title that matters? Is it reporting structure that matters? There are other responsibilities you should be looking for. Run, run with that a little bit and, and don't be afraid to be a little polemic. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so I think there's a couple of different things in, in what you just asked. The first is, that, let's just talk about titles. I think titles, and let's even throw in reporting structure as well, is yeah. very helpful as it relates to how either the executive team or just generally the organization either perceives legal or perceives the type of individual that they want to bring on on. Uh, and again, I'm going to talk in much generalities, and I think then you know anyone that's looking into these opportunities should then evaluate whether or not the generality fits basically the reality. But just again, it's just intended to kind of be little buckets to fit it in. When you see something like head of legal or VP of legal, what that often suggests is that they're looking for someone a little less senior, and they're looking at it being maybe a little bit more on the side of operational. And often when you see those titles, you often also see them reporting into the CFO 
because they're looking at it as somebody coming in and working really to take outside counsel costs, bring it in-house, and the like. Uh, when you see GC and you see reporting into the CEO, it is a recognition that the legal function is more of an executive team member, is going to attend the executive you know, leadership meetings, and is really viewed as a peer to the CFOs and the COOs and, and the head of HR and the like. And so again, generalization, but I think that's part of the conversation that one needs to have. And they also need to be comfortable with the reality of if they do go into that type of situation, they need to be comfortable with, hey, if you're a VP of legal, it, there is a chance that someone's going to be put on, on above you later on if you don't establish you know, your executive presence or like. Or you know, if you have a GC, you need to really step up to that executive role and really step into the fold of really understanding the expectation. And so I do think title and basically who you report to does influence the perception of what sort of work you're going to do. And I think it's important to have that kind of conversation very early on, either before accepting a position or even while you're in the position as to career development, how it moves from that title or reporting structure and really make sure that there is a clear alignment and expectation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and I think it also probably would inform those who might look at or apply to a role that's a, a VP of legal role, but know that even if you negotiate that title up to the GC title, What's really important is how are you being perceived in those interviews? What sort of responsibility are they right wanting to hand to you? Are you going to be, to your point, at the exec team meeting, right? Or are they saying, okay, fine, we'll just throw you the GC title, but we're actually going to pursue this exactly how we originally intended, which may not be a bad thing for the business and the stage that it's at, but important for folks who are who are interviewing and want to make that sort of jump to to think about. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Enough about titles. <laughs> we, why don't we dig in for a few minutes into sort of the substance of, of being a, a legal leader? You know, I think you've really thrived over the course of your career working with sales teams, go-to-market orgs, um, product teams as well, working on innovation issues. How have you built trust with those sorts of teams over the course of your career? Has it gotten easier over time? Uh, has the perception of legal changed at all? Um, what, what have you really done to, to forge strong partnerships with, with those other functions? Yeah, I think there's a couple of probably elements to it. I think the first is recognizing that not everyone has interacted with a lawyer in the past, or if they have interacted with a lawyer, they may not have had the most positive experience with lawyers in the past. And, and because of that, I think one of the first things you really need to appreciate in engaging with people, uh, whether it is uh, you know, senior executives, whether it's peers, or even whether it's even more junior, uh, junior individuals, both you know, largely outside of legal, is making it clear as to what you bring to the table. Because I think in the end, having a lawyer on staff, you know, presume the first question is, why do we have a lawyer? And in fact, uh, the biggest compliment I think that uh, someone on my team got at one point was, why do I have a lawyer at this meeting, right? And what that did is it opened up the opportunity for them to say, well, look, I'm a product attorney and I'm here because you know, in order to give you product legal advice, I need to understand, you know, the product, the technology, your roadmap, the ecosystem, and then, you know, on and on and on. And so it provided that opportunity to really then explain the role and explain how you're curious about what's going on. And most importantly, that you care about what your client or your your business partner is doing rather than it being this ivory tower. Because ultimately, if you are removed from basically the business and you know, either sit in your office or at your home and you're really only engaging just to answer a question, what ultimately happens is you get into this ivory tower where suddenly you become appear to be the, the, the tower of no, where you're the, you, know, you only stop deals from happening or that you just don't understand the context around what the advice is that you're giving and people go, ah, oh, 
you know, so-and-so just doesn't get it, right? And you wanted people to think of you not as a lawyer, but really as their business partner that just happens to have legal expertise that can then look at things through a legal lens. Absolutely. You know, oftentimes also help apply the advice maybe from the ivory tower too, right? From outside counsel um, to the to the business and, and where the business needs needs it, basically. More recently, you took on a couple of other sort of functional areas that were, you know, you had experience in, but that were newer for you to own sort of wholly or, or fully like government affairs. You were the chief privacy officer at DocuSign, um, which is a, a cool title that I want to ask you a couple questions about. Sure. What drove that and that sort of like expansion in your role, expansion in your team? Was it like a, a real need within the business? Was it your hope to take on new issue areas? And both, and it came together nicely at once. How did you, yeah, just think about that. Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons why I, I went to Docs and begin with, which was it was that opportunity really to kind of stretch into not not necessarily new areas, because I've done a lot of these areas before, but really start connecting all the dots together and really build out an infrastructure for it. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I think it was also need-based. And so what I think ultimately happens, whatever company you go to, is you go in with this evaluation as to, you know, how can I make a difference? And what are the needs within the company? And is the company receptive to those needs? So for example, at, at DocuSign, there was a huge need for uh, government affairs during the pandemic. And so we made a recommendation to the CEO saying, you know, there's going to be a lot of public sector need, and there's going to be a lot of things that are going to have to be you know, kind of navigated. We need to have some focus in that area of actually building out a government affairs function in order to engage with the public sector. We also had obviously public sector sales as well. And so it helped with basically having a voice and a focus in that area, both internally within the company. So they start thinking about government affairs as being something that will help with lead generation in the business, but also in advocacy and legislative reform and policy and everything in between. Uh, compliance, I think, was a similar one, where compliance was decentralized throughout the whole organization. And we said, you know, it probably makes sense to centralize it. We don't feel passionate that we have to own it. But right now, it feels like legal might be the best place for a lot of the compliance function just because we think five steps ahead and we're already doing parts of it. And so let's have that conversation. And then, you know, in the year and two years, if it makes sense to put compliance somewhere else, then let's have that conversation as well as to, you know, finding a different owner down the road. And I think similar with privacy, it was, it was, it was in a similar fashion where we were dealing with a lot of data issues and we were already offering up, you know, part of the privacy kind of regulatory compliance piece. And we said, look, we really should be thinking about this holistically as data governance. And so we ultimately kind of double clicked on that and then and built out a team, both from a strategy standpoint and an operational standpoint to uh, to tackle that as well. Yeah, I think so. I, we actually, we did another episode with Megan Niedermeyer and her legal ops lead, Brenda Perez, in which we talked a lot about the limits, but also sort of like the limitlessness potentially of what the legal department could own. Just a little bit of a follow-up for you there. Are there other places where you've sort of seen throughout your career that legal may identify the sort of issue, right? And say, we need to build out either this function or this team or a new process or program, but where you've said, you know, we don't think that actually legal is the place to, to own it or legal will take it on for a shorter period of time, but then ultimately we really think it needs to be handed off to another business owner. Yeah. Have you, have you dealt with that too? Well, yeah, definitely. I think that finance and legal are probably two of the major parts of the organization that often see horizontally and cross-function across the whole organization. And I think because of what you see where things are working really well and where there's opportunities for further enhancements. And so I think this actually goes to some of the stuff we were talking about before about professional development as well, 
which is I, I, I share philosophy, which is if you see a problem, you don't just kind of look the other way, right? Even if it's not a legal problem, you say it's not legal, therefore, hey, it's not my problem. What you try to do is you try to own it to a certain extent until you find an owner and really kind of you know, convey that to others. And so, you know, over my career, I've seen areas where whether it's new product introduction, whether it's new geo introduction into new, uh, new countries, whether it is operational processes, where you go, you know, it is far from truly a legal issue or a, or a, or a legal role to do it. But ultimately, in the end, for us to get to the legal advice, you need to have the business strategy. You need to have the decision-making process to come up with that strategy. You need to have the process of implementing on that strategy. And so what you often see is that lawyers are kind of helping facilitate it. So where I see really, again, back to the leadership, back to uh, professional growth, is I think there are opportunities for lawyers you know, throughout an organization when they see something that isn't working well to actually step up to the occasion, especially as you want to be perceived more as an executive leader, and say, look, I'm going to help build an ad hoc, a, a cross-functional ad hoc kind of tiger team. Yeah. I openly acknowledge that legal doesn't necessarily fully own it, but I want to help facilitate it. And let's have a conversation either on the call or back channel it as it relates to really should own it. And let's let's just lean in together and let's just get to basically done. And, and what I've seen is that actually first addresses potentially fundamental issues within companies that potentially blow up. I think second, it shows your executive ability for things. And then third, it builds that that cross-functional rapport of saying, hey, look, you know, let's go do so-and-so because th this person can actually help on, you know, a special project or a very complex issue. And it doesn't have to be about whether it's a business or a legal issue because I think a lot of things, especially as you work in house, blend together. I think it's about what are corporate problems or challenges in your organization and let's lean into kind of help. Builds a lot of credibility, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I am curious about one of those one of those areas, and my you know my background is quite a bit in privacy. And that role that you took on as as chief privacy officer, how, how do you think about sort of the the chief privacy officer role evolving? And then you did have a lot of deep experience throughout your career in, in IP, and and I'm curious, you see any parallels in sort of the rise of privacy and, and where you see privacy headed? You, you're drawing on from sort of your experience working on IP issues as yeah, I think it's I think it's twofold. I think first, you know, privacy overall has been very heavily a compliance function, right? A very complex compliance function with regard to the evolving kind of regulatory landscape. And I think what that is actually evolving into is the second point is it's more of a data governance question and a data strategy question. And so to your point about my background being that, you know, I have an electrical engineering degree, I started my career at Sunmic and West where I was doing IP before getting to be more broad, is that data is almost like that new piece of intellectual property that's out there where data actually helps with stickiness of product differentiation and data helps with developing new services. And again, back to kind of artificial intelligence. Yeah. Without blaming it, you don't have artificial intelligence. And so what I think is happening is data is becoming a very ubiquitous additional subject matter within companies that by controlling and having an understanding as to where your data is coming from, what you're doing with internally and where you want it to go, you're actually able to really create a further differentiation for your, your company and your products. And because of that, that's one of the reasons why uh, basically privacy was brought under my remit is because uh, privacy was one of these areas where it's kind of one part of that two-sided coin of data with regard to ensuring that you want to make sure that not just you do the right thing with data, but also that you have a data strategy where you then work with head of IT, trust and security, the product and the business, and also work with you know the audit committee on the board level and the like to ensure that basically there is a clear 
you know, kind of end to end data, you know, data strategy for, for the company. And that was going all the way up to the, the board level for you, the governance committee. I am curious about, about that. The board was really concerned with not just sort of the compliance aspect, but also the data strategy piece too. Well, I think, I think it, at a lot of different companies, it, it starts, it's starting to elevate up to that level because it's about data breaches and the current sort of about data breaches. So that's around information security. It's about compliance, which is basically more of that kind of privacy kind of lens of things of what are we doing with the with the with the data and are we going to make sure that no regulatory authority is suddenly going to, you know, name you in a complaint and or an action or the like. And then I think it's also on the business end that if, if your company uses data a lot, or at least data is becoming increasingly important, what are you doing with the data and have you greased the skids to be able to use data the way you want, which may bleed back into your commercial agreements and whether or not you've got the adequate permissions, whether it is the messaging that goes out in marketing literature, whether it is, you know, the click wraps on sites and the like, whether it's the third party vendors you bring in that you're using their data and really holistically looking at it. And so I do think that the board, from the standpoint of that big picture, just knowing that somebody's helping connect the dots yeah. and that it's clear who is the owner of each of these different pieces. And if there isn't one clear owner, legal helping facilitate connecting the dots and ensuring that there is an owner or legal taking on that responsibility. Let's talk a little bit more about legal tech and and maybe how data is going to be leveraged in the future or even a little bit in the present today to, to drive tech solutions for for lawyers. Um, not just because I'm at SpotDraft, but I was excited to, to learn that you are kind of a, a legal tech nerd <laughs> and it's something that you've tried to leverage all throughout your career across your different GC roles, your different teams. How do you see legal tech evolving what do you think is sort of most essential about it where do you where do you think that the the legal tech landscape is is headed admittedly i am i am a legal tech nerd so, so thank you for letting me that Tyler. i appreciate that uh, um uh, where i see kind of legal tech is that there's been kind of probably th at least three phases today with legal tech now, i think the first was that uh again late 90s early 2000s you had separate corporations building their own legal tech internally, having their own IT groups, building out the system because there just wasn't anything commercially out there. And so the problem with that is how do you scale that, right? Because you're not building value by having a second IT group that is literally building tools that is only for the legal organization. So I think that evolved from internal tools to then commercial tools of the first generation, which were really clumpy, and you were usually picking the best of the worst just to kind of get something out there so you didn't have to support it. And at the same time, you were able to use things to be more optimal and more efficient. And what's exciting is I think we're actually into that third phase. I think there's a lot of companies such as uh, SpotDraft as well as others where there is this next generation of the technologies, next generation of the people that are actually designing it, knowing what legal, legal needs, both internally as well as outside counsel, and being very sophisticated with it. And so I think what we're getting to is this point in the legal tech evolution where legal tech is no longer just this kind of weird little area that people just kind of hold their nose and just use whatever's out there, but rather it's actually becoming strategic tools that are not just value generation generators for the legal department, but I think are also becoming product differentiators or company differentiators. Because if you can pull up an agreement very quickly, or if you can respond to something more uh, more decisively than your competitor, you're able to get into maybe a new market quicker, or you're able to build a product more quickly or you're able to give insight to the board or the CEO more quickly in order for the company to move you know, more quickly, which is, I think, what we all want to do. Yeah, in other words, it's not just about the legal team, right? It's about the whole the whole business. I, I sure hope that we're beyond the sort of like first adopter, first mover stage from where from where I sit. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I want to start to sort of wrap up our, our conversation, um, which has been really great, uh, by by talking a little bit about the the people that you've worked with and the teams that that you've built. As we as we have talked about, the environment I think has changed a little bit over the course of the past couple of years, but retention is is sort of always a challenge, um, especially with really talented folks. What are some of the things that, that you've done over the course of your career leading teams to grow as a manager and, and to, to focus on on retention? Yeah, a couple fold. I think first, uh, being genuine, right? I mean, I think if you come in and you're approachable and people feel like you're trying to do the right thing, uh, they get a little bit more, um, shall we say, uh, people give you a little bit more discretion that if you goof on something or if you do something that, you know, rubs someone the wrong way, they're like, all right, he didn't mean it. It was just, you know, a misstatement and the like. And so I think it's, uh, I think that's the first part is being genuine and the like. I think in addition to that is really, uh, you know, so often you hear that there's kind of two schools of thought. It's one is you're the most intelligent person in the room and everyone, you know, around you kind of acknowledges that. And that that's one approach. The approach that I subscribe to is you want to surround yourself with people that are more, that just are the brightest and best around you and just put you to shame. Because I think what that basically reflects is first a confidence in yourself that you know that basically uh, that basically you are who you are and where you have strengths, great. Where you have areas of opportunity, acknowledge that as well. And you surround yourself with people that will give you their insight and be you know further value and tell you when you're wrong or tell you when there's alternative ways of doing things. And you want to really ensure that you have that kind of team. And I've been very very uh, fortunate through my career of really finding uh, those types of brilliant people that are willing to work with me. And uh, I could sarcastically say tolerate me, but but the work and really uh, empower them. And I think the the second part is if you actually going with this high octane kind of group, which I usually call like kind of like my legal rock stars. Yeah. I, the other thing you have to recognize is you can't just put them in this very very narrow box and say, look, I know I'm giving you only tactical stuff, and that's it. And so I think you also have to balance it with empowering them to present to the CEO, empowering them to present to the board, empowering them to drive strategic projects and make sure that when you do give them those opportunities back to the mentorship piece is you want to make sure that they do it when they're ready and that they're also prepared to succeed in doing that. And I think by being transparent, you say, look, I'm not not giving this to you because I think you're going to you're gonna muck it up, but I want to make sure that you look like a rock star in front of this executive or this individual. And so for that reason, let's hold off for you know three months. But I promise you, let's work on it and let's have a conversation. And I think in one-on-ones, yeah, with a team, which, you know, sometimes people may roll their eyes saying, oh, another one-on-one. -on -one. I think the important for that is actually to ensure that there's at least a structure or, or at least forced opportunity for you to discuss things with your uh, your team. And uh, often I think everyone everyone kind of, uh, should we say, uh, loves the, uh, the evaluation process you have for performance reviews, you know, every six months or year. And my philosophy is that you should never go into a performance review where your team doesn't know where they stand or where they're where they're strong or where there's opportunity. That should be really a validation of what's going on. I think all too often people are surprised by basically the feedback because it hasn't been this ongoing dialogue through the whole year. And so I'm a big proponent of really making sure that people know where they're where they're just hitting out of the park, where there's opportunity for further growth and and the like. And really leaning in with people. I mean, that's part of the role of being a manager is really to make sure that everyone's successful. I agree. Continuous feedback is always better as 
someone who's done a little bit of managing, but mostly been managed. And and also, it, it really resonates with me that that one on ones are important, and and keeping those on the calendar, and because that's really the, that's the opportunity for for that continuous. The flip side of retention, though, these days is is also that it is a bit of a tough market, and there have been some layoffs at, at you know large tech companies, and so I guess just curious for for those who may be going through unexpected career transitions, if you have any advice for for those those folks. Yeah, sure. So I mean, I think that the, the key thing is it's not it's not a reflection of you as an individual or as a professional. Because I mean, layoffs technically are because they eliminated a position. And so I think that's the first takeaway. Uh, second is that it's not, I mean, some people are fortunately find a new opportunity, you know, immediately and others, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit longer. And second, and that's also not a reflection of the individual, but rather of potentially the opportunities that are out there, of your network, of other situations and dynamics going, going on. And so I think there's also the surround yourself with people that understand these dynamics and and share views so at least you don't feel alone because i think there's uh, more recently been some really uh good studies around just people that kind of isolate themselves that basically they have more health issues and the like uh, i think it's important to say look you really reach out to family friends colleagues and just have conversations and validate what you're experiencing what you're feeling and uh, and just you know really kind of powering through the dynamics of uh, of looking for the next opportunity and looking at it is very much that is that next opportunity potentially is a better opportunity that you currently had. And that next opportunity gives you a new experience and using it as a way to self-reflect as to what that new thing that you want to do is. And if you have free time, you know, do additional things, learn the guitar or learn, you know, improve your golf game or actually take courses or, uh, or really lectures, uh, such as watching this video here, hopefully, you know, people take little gems away from it and, uh, and just really using it as an opportunity for growth. I think that's great advice. You know, as someone who went through a layoff last year, and now I'm lucky to be sitting here and interviewing you and having a, a sort of like great job and, and next adventure. The thing that I took away most from that experience was how supportive people were, and and even the people who I didn't expect to reach out. That was even that was almost even more rewarding to to experience than you know the call from mom or former boss. It was very cool to see how many people wanted to wanted to help and the only thing i can say to that is you know hopefully hopefully that you know all of us can also pay that forward too one one fun question before i let you go because we can't end by talking about layoffs <laughs> we asked this of our first podcast guests um so i'll ask it uh, again to you i think it's kind of a fun question what's the best swag you ever gotten from a tech company and also, only if you want to, what's the weirdest or the worst? <laughs> Boy, the best swag, I think, was a golf club, which was actually pretty cool. I mean, it was one of these things where, you know, you put in your business card and you got chosen, but uh, that was actually pretty cool, uh, getting a nice, uh, nice kind of driver. And then I think the, boy, the worst one, the where to start on the swag? I don't know. I mean... <sighs> It's like those things that you wonder why give it out and are people actually going to use it. So, I mean, it. I'm sure it was one of those, anything with some sort of flashlight in it that you never know whether to use. And of course, we've had the power outages around here recently, so maybe it would come in handy. But generally, things that have some sort of lighting element to it, I always was wondering why I need a lighting element. 
I'm I'm taking notes as the person at Spot Draft in charge of picking what our swag is at uh, at events around the country. I will not be asking the team to uh, to pull together little, little mini keychain flashlights with our logo. There you go. With that tip. Well, Doug, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you hopping on and and taking some time out of your day to speak with our community. You've got so much great advice to to share from from your career. Uh, thank you so much for for taking the time. Hey, Tyler, it's absolutely been a blast, and thank you for the opportunity again. I hope that uh, people get a couple of nuggets out of this and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation with you and others. And I, again, it's. Uh, it's just great to share ideas with, with other people, and thank you for facilitating this. Absolutely. To our listeners, thank you so much for joining and, and listening to the abstract today, and we hope to see you next time. Mm-hmm.